You're listening to the all-new Veterinary Podcast, The Vet Chat, with fellow vets and hosts, Matt Wells and Steve O'Ealy. Join us as we speak to a wide variety of industry professionals about hot topics and subjects affecting animal health in New Zealand. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the very first episode of The Vet Chat. I'm Steve O'Ealy, joined with Matt Wells as hosts of this show. We're both vets working at Furback. I cover companion animals and equine, and Matt is our production animal vet. Today, Matt speaks to vet Mike Shellcrass. Mike spent over 10 years up to his armpits in Waikato cows before realising his true calling was working for Fonterra. Since 2018, he has taken his practical approach and market knowledge to Fonterra, where he is a senior technical advisor. Thank you for tuning into our show. We hope you enjoy the very first episode. Our guest today is somebody that some of you may know reasonably well. We have Mike Shellcrass with us for today's podcast. Mike these days is a, what would you call yourself, a technical veterinarian at Fonterra? Senior. Yeah. You you haven't, well, you haven't Mm. got enough grey hair to have senior in your title at this stage, to be fair. I'll keep it well covered. (laughs) So yes, at uh, Fonterra these days, you've been there, what, a couple of years or so now after a a good career in clinical practice as a a dairy practitioner at Anexa, mostly in Morrinsville and Gordonton. Would that be a reasonable summary of your career to date? Yep. There's three years doing smallies locums in the UK in the middle of that. Yeah, it's been mostly cow. Okay, yeah, it's probably better than my three months of doing smally locums in the UK where I was just totally terrified and, and just hoping that I didn't get sued at some point. So I'm sure you did better than I did over there. Oh, it was similar to that. It just went for three years. <laughs> yeah, cool. I guess with Fonterra, obviously from, from the dairy vet's perspective, you're at the heart of a heck of a lot of stuff. There's a lot of a lot of things been happening in the last couple of years at uh at Fonterra, I know there's a few things that uh, that you guys have been working on, and and I think a lot of it really kind of comes down to this whole sort of customer consumer sort of interface, doesn't it? Really, just sort of trying to be as customer centric as you as you can. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah, I, I think there are there are probably a couple of different things that have happened, and and they're they're probably actually related. There is increasing awareness among consumers around kind of the provenance of their food and and it's probably not food actually it's uh, i think there's a general trend for people to have, want to have a provenance story for everything that they buy you know they, they, you want your i don't know your handcrafted macame tea set to to have a story you know it's not good enough to just be a plastic tea set or whatever and and the same goes to food as it, as it should because food is kind of quite fundamental to to us as a species. So, yeah, there's this there's increasing questions from consumers around where their food is coming from and how it's made. There is a vocal kind of activist movement yep. pointing out the the, the problems yep. that the dairy industry has and, and that all agricultural industries have. You know, this, mm. is, is, let's, this isn't just dairy, this is, this is pigs, this is chickens, this is all of these animal products have, have some... In, in, 
so so you have that happening and that puts pressure on food manufacturers and that's not necessarily Fonterra that that could be our customers and this is a, it was an interesting distinction that I had to learn coming into the business is is the difference between customers and consumers because the customers on the whole are large food ingredient mm. buyers so yep. you know companies like Nestle when that came to mind um, <laughs> or well, they're, they're, the, they're the biggest, aren't they? So, um, and and so they're the ones who are making promises or telling stories to their mm. consumers that then they have to go back to their ingredient suppliers and say, "Hey, we said this to our consumers. <laughs> How are we going to make it happen? Um, you know, we we've promised them we're going to have no palm oil. These these promises that that they make tend to have." reasonably long mm. time frames that they need to be implemented within but they will start falling due and i think that fonterra has recognized that and as part of that shift that's happened with the company where they were pushing mm. for more and more and more milk production you know and, and that was the the driver was we'll we'll get as much milk as we can out of New Zealand and then we'll take our skills overseas and we'll start getting as much milk as we can out of out of these overseas markets. Now that's that doesn't necessarily right. tell that good provenance story. The good provenance story is happy New Zealand farmers, you know, on, on their relatively small farms, you know, looking after the land. And in order to, to tell that story, there needs to be a, a shift in focus within the company. Mm. And mm. and so that's that's exactly what's happened, and I, and I think yeah, one of the drivers there will be because our customers, the large ingredient companies, are asking for a provenance story, and mm. the, so so now we need to adapt to be able to provide that story. So, what does that mean, I suppose, to to the farmer, I guess, and to the vet? I mean, obviously, mm. it may mean more things they need to do. Does it actually mean more income? Does it mean I mean, I suppose, you know, talking to farmers, uh, sometimes they see these things as a negative, but hopefully there's some positive in there as well for them. Yeah, and, and because of who I am and where I work within the business, my focus is on animal welfare. And mm. the it's an interesting topic because it does, you know, the phrase animal welfare does tend to have negative connotations. Yep. And, and that's a shame, but I can see why. It's happened, mm. and so when you say you want to talk to someone about animal welfare, inevitably they go, "Oh, it's it's a it's a bad thing." We probably we probably won't title this um, podcast "Animal Welfare." Yeah, no, it's it's, it's fine. We're going to talk about other things, but the, <laughs> yeah. from a from a provenance perspective, New Zealand our our pastoral farming system probably has a high inherent level of animal welfare. It's mm. it's not necessarily something that we've gone out looking for it's just something that's happened you know new zealand's got a growing grass the climate is reasonably temperate it doesn't get too hot most of the time it doesn't get too cold most of the time the cows are outside yeah. they're able to express their natural behavior but you know there's, there's a whole lot of good things here yeah so we have a lot less mastitis and we're about a third the level of mastitis of of european countries and we have a lot less lameness and those types of things just because of all of that just by chance exactly and we have we have better reproductive performance Mm. And you know lower levels of you know non-infectious disease as, as well as infectious disease. So you know less dietary-related disease. You know fewer 
displaced avamasums and acidosis and mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah, and that's a good story. And and uh, you know, I think we can go look. We've got really healthy animals, and and they have they have you know, in the scheme of international dairy, they probably have some of the best welfare that there is. But we're not very good at telling that story because no one wants to talk about animal welfare. But in this provenance-driven world that we're going into, I think that's something that we should actually be looking at. How do we celebrate the, the good aspects of our farming? Mm-hmm. Are we talking to protect what we have, sort of our existing markets, or are we talking trying to access new premium markets yeah. for this type of thing? So, so it's probably both. You know, you don't want to be stuck in a position where a client's, a customer has made a promise to their consumers, we can't meet it, and they go and buy their product somewhere else. You don't want to lose a customer over this. But yes, I think that is the question. In the longer term, I certainly can see New Zealand as a as a premium dairy producing market. Mm-hmm. You know, the the if if we're good at telling the story, then we can make something that that people will have. You know, they they will feel an emotional you know thing. I want to buy the best milk. This is the best milk because it's produced in the the best conditions. And that is something that we're starting to see because we've got. You probably haven't noticed it, and I don't know how much they're using it on New Zealand products, but we've got these trusted goodness brandings. So those are grass-fed, non-GMO, cared-for-cows brandings that get put on product. If you're, if you're an ingredient buyer and you buy products from us that is, has these brands attached, that also comes with a whole lot of support material and, and yeah. videos that they can use and, you know, Claims they are that they, they have been legally tested that they're allowed to say in markets X Y Z they can say this this product is has been certified as not containing genetically modified organisms or, or this this is 100% pasture fed and and those claims do attract a premium and so right. so so that's been growing year on year on year the most recent kind of calculation that I've seen done is that those claims were worth 150 million extra dollars to the co-op than if we just sold the normal milk. So that is something that is, I think probably has has some pretty good growth potential. So is that just just because it's from New Zealand you can put that claim on or you have to actually have guys meet certain criteria and only taken from certain areas? Yeah, or yeah. so a bit of both. So you, you may or may not be aware that every year every farmer is required to fill out a little sort of survey and that used to be called the nitrogen pages. It's now called the, f- the farm dairy records and, and the fact that it was called the nitrogen pages gives you a clue about what it, what it was. <laughs> it's, it, it was. It started off as Fonterra trying to understand what happens on farms because this is, a is again, probably something, you know, I think people think that Fonterra knows more th- than it does about what goes on in these farms. The, tr- the traditional relationship between the farmer and the milk processor was the milk processor comes and collects my milk and pays me for it. And that was, yeah. that was the entirety, you know, the, the whole extent of the relationship. And, and they, don't t- they don't tell me how to farm. They don't tell me, you know, they never come off the tanker track. They come, they pick up the milk and they go away and they send me some money. And that was, that was it for years and years. And, and that, I mean, that would have been right through the, the, the old days when there were lots of processors. 
and and maybe maybe there's some diversification there, but, but as things kind of agglutinated together, all of the processes eventually become three. And those those so that was when Frontier was formed. And for those of your listeners yep. who maybe were too young then, that was in two thousand and one. And and at the time, Frontier had ninety four, ninety six percent of the the dairy market in New Zealand, and and you had Tatua. Yeah. Up and around Morrinsville and uh, Westland on the west coast, and that, that yeah. was the, that was the dairy industry. And yeah, thanks for informing me of that. I, I don't recall <laughs> back to two thousand one. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, a, yeah, young man like yourself, Matthew. Exactly, um, exactly. Yeah, so yeah, so no, that was the yeah the historic relationship, and and so Fonterra really didn't know what was happening on these farms, and yeah. and then through the the early two thousands, there was that that in rapid growth and intensification of the dairy industry. And that was probably highlighted, you know, when people think of, of, of bad farmers, the 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 Crafer farms spring to mind. And yep. and and again, those that was just they grew too fast. You know, the, the mm. and, and people saw that as symptomatic of, of the entire dairy industry. And and I think that at the time you know, fingers were probably pointed at the co-op and the co-op went, well, we don't know what happens on these farms because we just pick up the milk. And so, again, that that goes, that's another one of those pressures. You've got these kind of internal New Zealand pressures where the society's gone, we want farmers to be, to manage their resources better. And and then the co-op's gone, okay, well, there's value if if we pull our resources and do it together. And you know you've got ten thousand farmers here. Let's let's work out. You know they can employ someone through the co-op to to work out what they need to be doing to maintain their social license to to keep farming. Yeah, there's a, the social license is a is a sort of newish term that well not that new, but um, it's a new age term, I suppose. <laughs> but it's actually quite appropriate in this sort of in this setting. I mean, it's a, it's both a, a local social license. It's a it's a license for the New Zealand public. It's for your customers, and it's, it's sort of within your farmers as well, isn't it? Mm. I mean, you, it's a very delicate sort of dance you've got to have to kind of try and keep everybody happy in, in this whole space, isn't it? You can never keep so, everybody happy, but no, try no. try to please the majority. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And I suppose when it comes down to it, yeah, yeah. Your farmers are, you know, if you if you're not meeting some of what your international markets are looking for, what your consumers are looking for, or the publicity's so bad locally, then your farmers aren't going to get paid, and they're not going to be happy anyway. Mm. So, so I suppose you've got to, you know, <laughs> that's where your priority sits, I guess, isn't it? It is. Like I think, from a social license perspective, the kind of things that the dairy industry does that might be sensitive to to social license, you've got. Local environmental issues, so kind of you, you, that's your nitrogen and your effluent into waterways and things like that, and that is that is a, a huge concern to the New Zealand public. But the international consumer probably has very limited awareness of of that, yeah. Because yeah, relatively, our country is still very clean and green compared to where they live, which is is, is mm. probably either urbanized or, or industrialized you know there's, there's mm-hmm. a lot of countries out there that, that don't look the same as New Zealand and and so so the, that local environmental stuff that that's a New Zealand public issue 
and the New Zealand public, they elect the government and the government yep. sets the regulations that we work within. So if dairy farming doesn't want to be regulated out of existence, then it needs to be able to prove that it's looking after the country's resource you know, on behalf of the public. Yep. So, that's, so that was probably the most pressing concern but back in the early 2000s. And so that was the, that, that's where the nitrogen pages came from. So the, so the nitrogen pages was an, was an attempt by the cop. It was a, a series of questions. How much fertilizer did you use? How much stuff did you buy in? You know, how, how, much, how much silage did you feed out? You know, how did you plant this? You know, the, the questions kind of grew and grew over the years as, as this, these issues got better understood. <laughs> and, mm. and, and so that was an attempt to kind of quantify what is happening on farm. And once you can measure it, then you can start to look at how it can be altered or improved. And then because those are, were questions that were being asked every year through the, through the nitrogen pages, other parts of the business that were also potentially needing to know things that were happening on farm in the animal sphere, questions got added. So they're no longer called the nitrogen pages, they're the farm dairy records now because they encompass a lot more than, mm. than just how much fertilizer you're using. So could you almost call it a sort of assessment of risk, a sort of risk assessment on farm? Not directly. So, so one of the – you could use the information that you collected to perform a risk assessment and, mm. and to an extent you are. So, so if you were to ask one of your farmers to show you their nitrogen risk scorecard, they probably could, mm. and that's a report that is generated for each farm off the farm dairy records. So, so you've, you 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 probably ask your farmers to sh to show you this. We generate a report called the nitrogen risk scorecard, and that that is based primarily off the information that they submit through the farm dairy records, and and that looks at a variety of practices that they're they're doing on farm. So, things like when they're putting the fertilizer on, how much they're putting on, uh, their stocking rate over winter, how they manage their wintering practices. Their maybe not necessarily their regrassing program, but their certainly their cropping program, and it looks for areas of their business where they are not utilizing nitrogen as much as they, where they're applying nitrogen, but they're not you know they're applying excessive nitrogen or their, their nitrogen inputs are excessive, and because that's your your risk around leaching into into the local environment. So that's a uh, that's an example of of how the farm dairy records information is used as a risk assessment at a local level but you can also use it as a risk assessment at a national level right and and if um fonterra were to find somebody who looked like they were putting excessive nitrogen on in a situation like that what's the what's the process then at the moment there isn't one yeah so 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 the again we, this is a this is a long slow process here yeah. going from we don't know anything that happens on farm to we know a bit about what's happening on farm but we're only collecting that information once a year and it's self-reported by farmers and some of it does go through a verification process mm. but so the again we're a we're a cooperative mm. and there are some it's not even a normal cooperative in that we're a cooperative that is kind of enshrined and regulated by law because of the monopoly position that that Fonterra was effectively in when it was formed so uh, there is uh, there are rules around how we can and can't treat different farmers 
differently. We're not basically we're not allowed to. So so all farmers have to be subject to the same rules and regulations, which means uh, you have to get permission from them to be able to to regulate them. And <laughs> and you can imagine that that's it's often not easy to do. Yeah, it's actually. I mean. I'm certainly learning quite a bit just having the conversation, but it's actually it's quite fascinating because yeah, I know there's a tendency from the public and perhaps within vets as well to say, well, oh, you know, why isn't Fonterra doing this? Why aren't they doing that? And sort of just understand that actually it's almost by regulation, it's very hard for you to do things, if not impossible in some cases. And, and there certainly are things you can do. I mean, you can influence things and you can say, you know, we won't pick your milk up if you don't do this and that type of thing, mm. can't you? But um but there are limitations, and and if you and, and you're you're a business in the end too, aren't you? I mean, if if you upset and really the farmers in a way are customers in their own right, and so if you upset them, they've they've got other options. So there's there's a lot of difficult stuff you to navigate there as well. They've got other options in some parts of the country, yep. but Fonterra does still have a, mono- a total monopoly in 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 some areas. Mm. So. While while some parts of the country, you know, sort of Canterbury, Waikato, there's some pretty fierce competition for, for milk supply. There are some areas where there isn't any, and and I think Frontier does need to be aware of its power in those situations. But again, but because of because of the the rules that we're bound, the laws that we're bound by, and the and that monopolistic, anti-monopolistic kind of tendency. We don't at the moment have the power to say you're out and you can never come mm. back. There always has to be a road to return, and that's that's if anyone's been paying attention to the dairy industry regulatory news over the past couple of years. There's been a lot of consultation through the government around the Dairy Industry Restructuring Act and the the amendments that are going th- through. And from 2023. I think the time frame was far enough away that I wasn't really paying attention. <laughs> Fonterra will have the ability to, to not necessarily to, to kick farmers out, but to refuse re-entry or entry to suppliers who are th- thought to not be able to comply with kind of good farming practices. Okay. You know, you, you have the ability to go, hey, look, you, you know, you used to farm with us. You've been convicted of animal yep. abuse. We don't want you back, but but again, that requires there's a pretty high bar. Mm. You know, someone had to to actually go through a conviction through MPI, things have to be pretty bad, and you, know, you tend to, have to require some some pretty extraordinary evidence there, which is which is why you don't see many prosecutions. Yeah, yeah, they, um, they tend to be yeah they tend to actually make the general news, not just the sort of farming and vet news. Some of those don't they, but. Yeah, I mean that actually segues quite nicely, I guess, into into where the role of vets within this is, and and some of the sort of the welfare, and I guess the 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 term that you and you sort of implied the negative uh, connotations of the term welfare, and I, I think you're sort of more using the term well being these days. Am, am I right there? What we want to do as a as a team is is work out how do we. What do we need to do to to prove the good welfare story that that happens in New Zealand? And and probably the f- the first step again is is you need to measure it and then verify it, and then you then you can tell your story. Yeah. So the, the those those animal health questions haven't been in the farm dairy rules for very long, and the 
some of the results we get, we think they're plausible and some of them they're not. And some of that is to do with farmers not necessarily understanding the question. And that's that's probably our problem for not writing the question clearly yeah. enough. Some, some of it is data recording. So if someone's put in somewhere that they've got, you know, 10 cows rather than 100 cows, then all your other calculations you do are going to be out by a factor mm -hmm. of 10. And, you know, you can pick some of those up. You know, when I went through the records from last season, there was a farmer that had 800% lameness. And I think that was a result of two errors being multiplied together. Um, it's pretty bad. Probably should have been eight. Mm. Yeah, it is. You, you go, but, but it's also not plausible. <laughs> yeah, well, know, every cow's I, you, been lame eight times, I suppose. That's 800% lameness. But yeah. Given what I would consider a normal progression of a case of lameness, <laughs> I don't think there's enough time yeah, within a season <laughs> for every cow to be lame eight yeah. times. Yeah. So, we're, so obviously, I mean, I can kind of see, yes, your your – we're talking here about the farmers sort of self-reporting a lot of this stuff and, and the fact that Fonterra isn't on farm and doesn't get the opportunity to actually make the assessments themselves. And I guess the people who are on farm and have a pretty good idea of what the welfare is are the vets. And I, and I suppose that's trying to bridge that step and, and have the vets involved in some way. Well, the things that we want our farmers to do, it is difficult to – or it is a cumbersome process – to, to create new regulation. Mm. And and this is, again, something that, that for years, you know, if you look at the some of the other milk processing companies, they have had some kind of incentive system where mm. farmers who, who do go above the minimum standards for whatever reason, primarily milk quality, that's probably the, the obvious yep. one that people talk about, they they get rewarded in some way. So if your cell count is low, you get paid more for your milk. And and that's something that, yeah, that, that, that certainly when I was in practice, people said, oh, why doesn't Fonterra do this? And I, I think I probably was one of those people who said that. And and now that I'm more aware of what goes on inside, it, it's probably in part because all the farmers are supposed to be treated the same, but also there wasn't actually the pressure to do it. You know, our, as a country, without incentives, or as a as a processing company, our sale count is is pretty low most of the mm. year. You know, I think our average for last season was about one hundred and seventy thousand, and and that's mm. been reasonably stable. Goes up and down a little bit, but and and that's from an international international perspective, that's good. You know, um, absolutely, the, the, yeah, it's the, extremely good. The the best sale count that I've seen at a national level is Switzerland. But they don't farm the same way that we do. Well, I suppose no one does really. Australia <laughs> is, is probably close. Ar and Ireland, maybe. Well, even Ireland, they've got a lot more house cows than we do. Yep, um, yep they do. You know, they're, they're, again, they're they're interesting to look at because when their production tariffs were removed relatively recently, they've had an explosion of their dairy industry. We need to be aware that if the media overseas are saying cows outside are bad because X, Y, Z, they'll get more lameness or they'll get too cold, mm. those questions will be asked of us. And if they say your cows are outside, they're going to get more lameness, we need to be able to say, well, the evidence doesn't support that because yeah. actually we have a, a very low level of lameness. Oh, but you don't measure it. 
like, oh, that's true. Yeah. So, so, so that's why we need, you know, one of the reasons why we, we, it is good to have some more information around what, what happens on our farms because yep. we will get asked questions. And, and again, Ireland, good example because we're trying, because they're in the EU and we're trying to negotiate a free trade deal with the EU. Mm. Um, you know, if they go, if they, if they can successfully argue welfare is worse in this country because the, because the cows are outside or, or for because, oh, look how cheaply they produce their product. It must be bad. I think that's mm. actually the, the tenor of their argument <laughs> at the moment. But the, 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 you know, there are, some, there are some real serious implications there around oh. being able to, to prove or, or not the, the standards of welfare that you have. Non-tariff trade barrier, potentially. That's right. That's right. Mm. And, and, and the UK is the same. You know, they're in the same position. They've got a reasonably powerful farming lobby. They probably don't want cheaper New Zealand products mm. coming onto the market. Well, um, I mean, historically, we know we've seen that type of thing with um, lamb going into France and those types of things. So, mm, yeah, absolutely mm. see that. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So it's it's all it's all it's all big and complicated and interesting. <laughs> yeah. So 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 going back, Frontier Frontier didn't have a way of incentivizing farmers to do things you know there was you meet the re regulatory requirements that are set by mpi or or you don't and 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 the kind of that was it and and the only the only tool or lever that you've got there is is we won't pick up your milk anymore and that's that's a that's a big stick um but it's also because it's a big stick there are a whole the, th the threshold to get to that point is is quite high so just the the idea of introducing a carrot to accompany the big stick it seems sensible to me and I'm, yeah. I'm very pleased that they've done it so that's that's the cooperative difference so what exactly is the carrot in the cooperative difference so the, so this i mean this has been going we're in the second season now the cooperative difference is a, is a, a set of voluntary activities or or requirements that if a farmer meets those then they they get recognition and a reward. And over the past couple of seasons, the re reward has been in the form of a, a small number of farm source dollars they could spend in, in farm source stores. Now, as of next season, that that incentive is going to be tied to the payout and and it's going to probably be worth a reasonable amount of money to to most farmers. And, and the the hope is that that incentivizes more of them to to go above these minimum standards that are set and and it allows us to kind of reasonably rapidly adjust the kind of things that we're encouraging farmers to do so the the problem with regulations or one of the problems with regulations is they're very slow and, you know if we go okay we want every farmer to have uh, an animal health plan you probably spend 5 years going through the regulation change process by the time you've consulted and then some people who are reactionary or, or conservative say no you can't make me farm how I want to farm and then you have then you then you change the law and then you have to have a transition period and then by the time you get there or you can go hey it'd be good if you guys had an animal health plan we'll give you some some more money if you do suddenly they start to do it on their own and by the time you get to five years it's happened anyway that's the theory and everyone's happier about it. 
and, and you've sort of started. Uh, it's a it's a fairly similar kind of process to what you've done with the environmental stuff, and and perhaps a little bit with AMR and those types of things. Just a sort of, it's kind of. I I think I got introduced to this word by by. Fonterra sort of socializing ideas and kind of uh, incentivizing and softly, softly to begin with. And then um, after a few years, the sort of, okay, if you don't do this, we're not going to pick your milk up kind of thing. So they maybe not going to get to that point, but. but No, but that's, I mean, yeah, it's some good, good um, corporate jargon there, isn't it? Socializing yeah, the, it is. the idea. Uh, socializing yeah. meant something so different when I was at university, yeah. but. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, let, let's take the animal health plan as an example. If we were to say, oh, look, it's a voluntary thing, everyone should do it, uh, the majority of farmers end up doing it, let's, let's say within five years, then it, then suddenly the, the, the amount of resistance that's there when you, if you were to say we'd like every farmer to have one, the resistance is less because people have had time to make that transition and to, yep. and to work out that it's, it's not necessarily that hard because the thing that – that we don't do very well as a country going back to it is that animal welfare assurance. Mm. We've got this good stuff happening, but we're not good at talking about it because we don't have good data to, to prove that there's good stuff happening. And historically we've relied, I think probably on our isolation. You know, people, people don't come here so they don't actually know what it's like or when they do come here, they kind of look at it and go, Oh, it's nice and green, isn't it? The, the fact that it's extensive. And so, it's it's difficult to make the same kind of animal welfare comparisons with with other countries because the farming system is so different mm. and that the demand wasn't necessarily there and mm. so so if 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 people asked us about uh, us new zealand or, or or companies about animal welfare you could probably go hey look our cows are outside it's not really mm. a problem and they go oh okay but but now that Consumers and customers are starting to ask for more evidence. Mm. Increasingly overseas, you've actually got independent welfare assurance programs that are developing, and and you can we could argue the merits of those for for hours if we wanted to, because mm. some of them I think are, are not necessarily very well regarded within the animal welfare community, and that they, you know yes, there's a there's a, a check mark of some sort on this this box of eggs to say the welfare is great but does that program actually do what it says it does and and it is it, i think it's difficult to to design a, a welfare assurance program i'm not as clinical vets where's where's our role i'm, I'm using the hour even though neither of us is a clinical vet any longer but yeah, we, you, know, you know what what is what's our role i suppose in this whole process and and things like the cooperative difference and where where do we fit mm. in there it depends how cynical we want to be about this that's highly regarded and trusted professionals mm. by farmers and by the general public and if you can say hey we've got vets doing this program that's that's a whole lot more valuable at a corporate level than saying we've got non-vet assessors mm. doing this program so i suppose you could for um, argument's sake you could have qcons and assure quality who are doing the the other auditing at the moment just do yep. the welfare auditing if you yeah and that's you know depending on what our customers want mm -hmm. You know, is that something that, that could happen? 
I, the, that's so that's the that's the, that was the simple <laughs> part. From 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 my perspective, I don't think that that provides sufficient welfare assurance. And prim- my motivation primarily here, if we're looking at, at creating a welfare assurance scheme, would be one that actually improves the lives of mm. cows. That's that's what I'm interested in, and and I'm also kind of passionate and proud about my profession, and and I would. Would I trust that vets are are good, or or, or probably the the best placed yep. people to to make assessments of welfare at a farm level? And so my my internal motivation is I want cows to to have better lives, and and I want vets to be involved with ensuring that because because those are two other groups that I care about. And then from a professional perspective, it would be beneficial for the company that I work for to have some kind of welfare assurance system that, that meets the requirements of their customers and consumers. So potentially you're actually, there is, well, I mean, you said before you can't please everybody, but maybe there is a, an opportunity there to almost please as many people as possible if, we, if you get it right. Yeah. Well, that doesn't necessarily please the farmers. True. You've got, you can't forget them. So from a a true welfare auditing perspective I, th- I think if you look at if you look at the Richard Laban's just put out a paper which is quite interesting where he's trying to look at what is practical on farm and and this is the that practicality is where a lot of the programs overseas fall down there's the the EU have a, a program called welfare quality or a, a scheme or a, a mm. framework and, and they spent 11 years developing this this protocol for assessing animal welfare on farm. And I think it takes seven hours or something like that to do one farm's inspection. And and it's very comprehensive. And I'm I'm not. And it's got some very kind of complicated maths that goes into you know calculating prevalences and things like that. But it's not it's not mm. practical. And so it hasn't seen widespread adoption. And it's it's full of good stuff if you look at it. You go, oh, that's a good idea, and that's a good idea, and that's a good idea. But because they pile too much in, it's it's not. It wouldn't work in the real world. It's you know, sure, it's, you've consulted with academics from forty different institutions around the world to create it. That's that's really good. But those people maybe haven't tried to then go out and and inspect you know, thousands of farms within within mm. one year, and. And so, so what Richard has, has done recently is kind of gone. Okay, from the, from those and from other schemes, what are some measures that we can? A smaller number of measures that we can look at, and then how would you apply those in a New Zealand farming situation? Right. Um, so we're we're at the moment the scheme is not there in an official capacity and I suppose there's a sort of more unofficial kind of we have the contribution to the cooperative difference just through through our day-to-day jobs I suppose of managing mastitis and managing lameness and those types of things is that sort of is that fair that yeah so so, so, yeah at at the moment yeah at the moment within the cooperative difference the vets the vets role is is to help the farmer create their animal health plan and and that's that was left intentionally vague and that's been up 
that's been an annoyance to some vets and has, has probably, it would have been annoying if we'd been too prescriptive as well. So I think overall, it's probably sitting in, a, in an okay space, although I'm very happy to take feedback <laughs> on that. And, and, and I have on occasion. Yep, um, I'm sure you have. <laughs> so that is getting farmers used to the idea of, of proactive herd health planning, which lots of farmers and lots of vets are already doing. But some farmers have never thought of or talked about or, or done something like mm. this before. And I think that what is interesting about the, the metrics that, that have been chosen, the way the DCV has chosen to present it, some of those metrics are ones that I'd never mm. thought of looking at mm. when I was in practice. And, and so it would have been useful for me as well to, you know, kind of go, oh, yeah, it's a good way of thinking of things. So, yeah, at, at, at the moment, the cooperative difference is have this animal health plan with your vet. Now, that's going to change slightly next mm -hmm. season, but not, not hugely so. Going back to that context of Fonterra picks up the milk and pays me money and doesn't say what happens on farm, we're getting to that point where we can't do that mm -hmm. anymore and we need to slowly get farmers used to the idea of, of the co-op having more say in what happens on farm and more knowledge about what happens on mm. farm. Yeah. No, I think, uh, I mean, we could talk about this for a heck of a long time, I think, but, yeah, it's actually been very interesting. There's a lot of stuff that I've found out, I have to admit, I didn't know a heck of a lot about some of the things that have been going on. And I, I like hearing a lot of the words, and I think it's it's quite noticeable, the, the sort of change in language, I guess, and the change in approach of Fonterra in the last two or three years in general, you know, right across the, the whole organisation, that, that sort of more words like practical and reasonable and logical and those types of things coming in a lot more often. And it does. I mean, it, it all sounds like good practical stuff. So, yeah, we look forward to seeing it sort of in action and developing over the next few years. Yeah, so uh, that's great. Thank you very much, Mike. I've really enjoyed the chat. Hopefully uh, some of the listeners have enjoyed and got a few things out of it. Uh, anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Sounds good to me, Matt. Thanks for your time. Brilliant. Thank you. That was our very first episode of The Vet Chat with Matt Wells interviewing Mike Shellcrass from Fonterra. I apologise in advance for Matt's dry sense of humour. We hope you enjoyed the show. To find out more, visit nz.verbeck.com slash podcast. Thanks again for listening. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to The Vet Chat with Matt Wells and Steve O'Ealy. This show is proudly supported by Verbeck. If you want to find out more, go to nz.verbeck.com forward slash podcast.